This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're so delighted you've joined us today, and we have a great show in store for you. Thomas, I'm feeling good. (laughs) We had some really good news this week, and you know, it's time to party. Well, it's time to party, but we got to party responsibly, and I'll explain what I'm talking about. But isn't it great news that we now have three vaccines? And I'm telling all the listeners, the first vaccine you're offered, put it in your arm. This is great news. We've had this pandemic for a year. Now let's get people vaccinated. Boy, the big bogey this week, of course, if you didn't hear the news, if we're the first to be telling you, was that the CDC came out with new regulations on Monday and said, Steve, if you've been vaccinated and I've been vaccinated, we could start recording these shows in person again without a mask. Yeah, that's correct. But I want our listeners to understand exactly what Thomas said. In small groups, if all the folks have been vaccinated, you do not need to wear a mask. But if there's anyone in that group that has not been vaccinated, you should continue to wear a mask. And I'm not trying to throw a damper on it, but I want us to celebrate, but celebrate responsibly so we can end this as soon as possible. You know, this is one of those to me that every time we get a little window of opportunity to celebrate, we need to take the celebration and then take that step back and capture where are we. So with this, I took a look and I know you keep a Hawkeye on these numbers, but the R not factor, the factor of how spreadable is this disease still out in the community is still hovering at a number that we don't want it to be at. We're not there yet but we're getting closer. We're definitely getting closer. You know, if you look at the number of cases, if you look at our hospitalizations, as you look at the number of people in intensive care, and as you look at the number of deaths, and we're so sorry for everyone that's lost their life to this, it's coming down. It's moving in the right direction. But the virus is still out there, and the variants are still out there. We've got to all celebrate but we've got to continue what we're doing until we reach herd immunity. And you know, Thomas, herd immunity can be achieved. Well, also this week came the news that the age in Texas to get the vaccination is dropping now down to 50. So now a lot more of us, the age of folks probably listening to this show, are now candidates, will be candidates to get the vaccination. But I'm nowhere near personally because I do have a big risk issue. I've got a health issue. It's atrial fibrillation with my heart. We've talked about it on the show. I don't mind disclosing that. Had it for about seven years, and that would make me very susceptible. And in fact, last week I mentioned this friend of mine. It's a friend of a friend. I didn't know this man, but he was about 63, and he died of a heart attack two weeks ago because he had COVID a while back. So it was the damage to his heart. Finally, it just gave out one night. Well, I'm nowhere near wanting to take my mask off, even if I had the shot. Well, you know, Dr. Haley, who we had on the show from UT Southwestern, I'm paraphrasing, but I think he said it best. Get the first shot in your arm, you're often. Because 
There may be a little soreness. It may be kind of like a tetanus shot. And then when you get your second dose, assuming it's not the Janssen, you may feel bad, have a little muscle aches, headache, et cetera, for 24 hours. But Thomas, as he said, that's much better than going to the hospital and deteriorating, going to ICU, and then, unfortunately, losing your life. I've got a friend in the state of Colorado who takes pretty good care of his body, and he's pretty careful with what he puts in it. And he was offered the J&J Janssen vaccination this past week. Steve, I can't tell you the relief, the exuberance, the wow, just this releasing this long year as he communicated to me that he got the vaccination a week ago today. And was just in this almost ecstatic state. And I know he will not yet remove the mask. He's very conscious of community health. But boy, is it ever a big step forward. It's a big step forward. And what you're describing is what many of the medical professionals in our hospital said. The day they were giving out vaccines, there was joy in the air. They could see smiles on the faces of all the healthcare workers. They could see hope. They knew there was light at the end of the tunnel. And we want the general population, as they get their vaccines, to feel the same way. Thomas brought up a good point. And for our listeners who may have missed some of our previous shows, if you get the vaccination, why do you still have to wear a mask? Well, if you're in a situation like the CDC said, and you're in a small group and everybody's been vaccinated, maybe you don't. But if you're even if you've been vaccinated, if you go out to the grocery store or if you have to go out for whatever the reason, you should wear a mask. You could be carrying the virus, the vaccines protecting you, but you could still infect a fellow Texan. So where this goes now, the shift of where we take this is how fast can I get vaccinated, right? So now we have the ability to get in line if we are 50 and older. What should we be looking at going forward as far as the expectation of the availability to get the vaccination? You know, it's going to be different state by state. We're trying to increase the production. We're trying to get as many vaccination doses in as possible, and we're trying to get them distributed so that we can get it into the arms of as many people as possible. And Thomas, when you look at what we've had to do and the amount of distribution, overall, it's gone pretty well. There have been bumps in the road, no question about it. It's not a perfect process, but we're going to keep at it until we get herd immunity. So if somebody is in their 50s, for example, or their 40s, is it the kind of thing of stay the course, help is coming? I think it definitely is. And I think also as we get the vaccines to your local pharmacies and get it to your local physicians and they know your underlying health conditions, I think that's going to help too in the priority related to even if you are 50 or 55, but you have some serious underlying medical conditions, you know, you can work at that time with your personal provider. Still a lot to be done. I know there are people that think that uh, we could do a better job, and maybe we could, but we're going to keep plugging away. Well, this is was definitely a cause for celebration, so we had to take pause to do that. Now, we're going to talk in the next segment about a topic that is more prominent than it gets the spotlight, Steve, and that is 
childhood hypertension, and especially during COVID as kids and adults have been less active and more inside, we've put on the pounds, and this is becoming an elevated issue. Yeah, many of the clinicians refer to it as pandemic pounds, and I got to tell you, no one's immune from it. It doesn't matter if you're a pediatric, whether you're an adolescent, or whether you're an adult. We're all in this together. So there are two areas that can become a factor, childhood diabetes and childhood hypertension. We're going to go to children's health in our next segment and talk to Dr. Alan Singh. He is a pediatric cardiologist, and he is going to tell us all about it. That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare on 1080 KRLD. And radio.com. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. You know, when we think in terms of hypertension, many times people think of adults, but you know, we have to think about children as well. We're delighted we've got Dr. Alan Singh, a pediatric cardiologist with pediatric heart specialists at Children's Health with us today. Dr. Singh, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me. So to our listeners out there, maybe they don't realize this, but how common is hypertension in children? The most recent data suggests that the rate has been relatively steady at three and a half to four percent. The CDC specifically quotes numbers of one out of every 25 children in in the teenage population. Um, But there are subgroups of patients, um, such as those with obesity, who have higher rates up to 10 to 12 percent, which is one out of every eight to 10 patients. So depending on the other medical conditions, that uh, rate can certainly be higher. You know, for adults, Sometimes if they have bad headaches, not that there are a lot of symptoms with hypertension, but there are some. Are there any symptoms or any triggers in children that would alert parents that there could be hypertension? So this is one of the kind of the the challenging situations with high blood pressure and recognizing it because many times it's been called the silent killer. Uh, It's a little bit dramatic, but the reality is that many times there are no symptoms at all. Now, as you mentioned, there can be some times when somebody has a, a very high blood pressure or if there's a rapid increase in the, in the blood pressure that you can get symptoms like headaches, uh, blurry vision or nosebleeds, Some patients can get fatigued or they just uh, complain of not feeling very well, but most of the time there are no symptoms at all. And so that's why it is important to uh, get the blood pressure checked on a regular basis when you're doing your routine um, physical exams. Now, if, if the blood pressure goes untreated and undiagnosed for long periods of time, there can certainly be damage to various organs in the body, like the heart, the kidney, the eyes, and the brain. Um, And it is a major cause of atherosclerosis, which is what we commonly think of as clogging of the arteries. But the reality is that most of the time, even those, uh, there are no symptoms at all. In children, what are some of the major causes of hypertension? So there are two main categories that we usually think about. Uh, They are primary hypertension and secondary hypertension. 
So primary hypertension is far and away the most common cause. This is usually caused by lifestyle choices like a poor diet, lack of exercise, or being overweight. And this is what most doctors are seeing and treating when they evaluate patients with high blood pressure. But very importantly, there's this other category, secondary hypertension, which is high blood pressure that's caused by other medical problems, the most common of which are kidney or heart problems. Um, there are a, a lot of other types as well. These causes are much less common, um, but they're very important to evaluate for because the blood pressure uh, treatment may be different than if you're just trying to focus on the primary hypertension. You would certainly want to focus on the underlying medical problem to get the best outcome uh, in terms of treatment. Um, there was one other point I wanted to mention about uh, measurement of blood pressure. There's, a, uh, there's an entity called white coat hypertension. Some of your listeners may have heard of it before. You know, imagine someone who has a normal blood pressure most of the time, but then they go to the doctor's office, they get nervous, they maybe even see someone wearing a white coat, and then their adrenaline increases and their blood pressure goes up. Uh, and this is called white coat hypertension. And this is actually quite common in kids. Um, a third and even maybe up to a half of all kids getting evaluated for high blood pressure may, may just have white coat hypertension. Uh, and this is an important uh, public health issue because a lot of these kids, their blood pressure may not uh, meet criteria for treatment, but they may undergo a lot of unnecessary diagnostic testing, et cetera. So it's important to get blood pressure measurements in various settings, including at home where they may not be as nervous. So what do you do if you have a child whose blood pressure is elevated and you may suspect it's kind of the white coat syndrome? Do you take it at other times? So how do you kind of distinguish to make sure it's not truly elevated pressure? There's two major ways that we try to define white coat hypertension. The first one is exactly like you mentioned. We try to get the blood pressure checked in various settings. Um, so if it's high at the doctor's office, but then you go home and you check it and the patient says that they're not nervous at home, uh, and then we imagine that those pressures are probably more reliable in terms of what the true underlying blood pressure is. So definitely getting blood pressures in different settings. Uh, but another way that we um, use is called an ambulatory blood pressure monitor or an ABPM. This is a specialized blood pressure device uh, that we issue out in our clinic and various um, medical providers that treat hypertension uh, have these devices. It's basically a device that, imagine a blood pressure cuff, uh, but instead of it um, being something that sits on a table, you can actually wear the monitor part in your pocket or on your belt, and, and you carry it around with you. And it checks your blood pressure every uh, 20 to 30 minutes or however uh, frequently we wanna set that reading. And it gives you a lot of good numbers, um, including your average blood pressure when you're awake and when you're asleep. And also calculate something called the blood pressure load, which is uh, what percentage of your blood pressure is greater than normal. And the reason this device is really helpful for white coat hypertension is that it takes about two hours to get used to the device inflating and deflating. And uh, we actually throw those numbers away because after that, we think that's a more accurate uh, picture of somebody's blood pressure profile. So we use that actually quite frequently in our office to determine if somebody has white coat hypertension or not. You know, that's fascinating in the, in the different techniques you use. To our listeners, especially the parents, in your opinion, what is a healthy range of blood pressure for children? 
So it depends on how old the patient is. You know, kids are all different sizes and shapes. And uh, so for children 13 years and older, we use the same uh, clinical criteria to diagnose hypertension as we use in adults. So that would be less than 120 over 80. And above that, there are different categories called elevated blood pressure, stage one hypertension, and stage two hypertension. And as you can imagine, the higher the blood pressure is, the, the category can change. But for children 12 years and under, uh, we actually use standardized charts based on a child's age, height, and gender. So a blood pressure that's normal for a three-year-old is very different than a normal blood pressure for a 12-year-old. So um, with the, the new uh, pediatric hypertension guidelines that came out in 2017, uh, they have updated their, uh, their growth charts basically, or what we call blood pressure charts, um, that we can uh, reference when we see these patients to get what is normal for their age, height, and gender. You know, you mentioned gender, so I'm just going to ask this question. If you're under 12, does the blood pressure range change male, female? Uh, in general, the male, uh, male blood pressures are higher than the female blood pressures as a general rule of thumb. That's not always the case, but when you look at the charts, that's what it plays out as. This is fascinating discussion. You know, you've touched on some of the complications related to hypertension in children, but are there any other risk of hypertension in children that you want to emphasize to our listeners? Yeah, you know, hypertension in and of itself is a problem, but it can certainly impact the treatment of other medical conditions as well. You know, with, with COVID-19, there's been a lot of uh, data that suggests that patients with underlying hypertension can have more severe forms of uh, the infection. Uh, and there are certainly some cardiac issues that can uh, be impacted by hypertension as well. For instance, there's a condition called aortic valve insufficiency, where essentially one of the main heart valves uh, is called the aortic valve. And if you can develop uh, leakiness of that valve for whatever reason, the blood pressure, the higher it is, can actually make the leakiness worse. And so as part of the treatment for aortic valve insufficiency, good management of the blood pressure is an important part of our treatment course. Dr. Singh, Thomas Miller here. Quick question before we go to break. So taking this whole package of what you've established here, if these patterns are established in childhood, is it much more difficult to break them as they grow and become an adult? In other words, does the obesity basically stay with them? Does the hypertension stay with them? For hypertension, we, there, there is very strong data that suggests if you are hypertensive as a child, you are much more likely to remain hypertensive as an adult. And if you have normal blood pressures as a young person, you are much more likely to have normal blood pressures as an adult. It is not 100% in either direction because, you know, people's uh, behaviors change. But when you have that positive or negative momentum, it is difficult to break out of it. Not impossible, but uh, more difficult than if you start in a healthy place in the first place. You know, when we're talking about our kids, we're talking about our most precious thing, right? This is Dr. Alan Singh, and he is a pediatric cardiologist with pediatric heart specialists at Children's Health with a message for us today of something that could sneak up on us, especially during the pandemic, especially during this time of less activity than normal. More on childhood hypertension when we return on the human side of healthcare. 
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing to talk about one of the most precious, valuable things in our lives, our kids, and a childhood ailment that we've been seeing a lot of in the past year that can slip up on us. We're talking with Dr. Alan Singh. He is a pediatric cardiologist with pediatric heart specialists at Children's Health in Dallas about childhood hypertension. And we're going to pick up with the question, how is it treated? Yeah, so it's it's very similar to the way that we treat it in adults. Um, first off, uh, we would focus on uh, if there was a secondary medical condition, we would very much so want to treat that in order to get the optimal outcome. But if we're just talking about primary hypertension, it's focused mostly on lifestyle choices. That would be things like diet, exercise, and weight loss. So for the diet, we recommend a specific diet called the DASH diet. That stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension Diet. And this emphasizes more fruits and vegetables, uh, low-fat dairy foods, Um, limiting foods that are high in saturated fat and limiting sugary beverages and sweets. But uh, perhaps most importantly is to lower the sodium content. Uh, That uh, diet, which uh, the American Heart Association recommends, uh, they they require less than 2,300 milligrams of sodium or salt in a day. And just for reference, the average American diet has around 3,400 milligrams of salt. And so there's certainly room for most of us to improve. And we use the same criteria for kids. For exercise, we recommend 30 to 60 minutes, three to five days a week or more. There's a very strong uh, data set that suggests that exercise not only impacts the blood pressure in a positive way, but just the overall cardiovascular health. And then finally, we know that weight loss is very important as well. But certainly, if after the lifestyle changes and the blood pressures are not where we need them to be, then that's when we start talking about uh, prescription blood pressure medications. Now, fortunately, we have very safe and effective blood pressure medications. Um, there's a long history of these, of these drugs, especially in the adult population, but we use them quite frequently in the pediatric population. Um, but it is important for people to note that this is sort of a last resort, and we want to do it naturally as much as possible. You know, in talking with some of the physicians that treat adults, they said that during COVID-19, they've noticed some people have gained weight. They're not getting as much exercise. There have been more cardiovascular issues. Have you seen any trend similar to that with children? Absolutely. It's it's unfortunate, but it is somewhat understandable. You know, patients, they're not going outside as much. They're not Uh, many times participating in the same team sports. So I would say that this past summer and even this uh, fall and winter, we've had a lot of patients who previously had well-controlled blood pressure or cholesterol issues, and then they came in and they'd gained 5, 10, 15 pounds, and their numbers were not in the ranges that we wanted them to be. So that is a a very accurate assessment of a lot of the, the unintended consequences of the pandemic, unfortunately. Dr. Singh Thomas again, on those pounds, on those extra pounds, what do you see are some of the bigger contributing things that parents can do to make the greatest impact? Yeah, well, you know, I think the most important thing is that, uh, this sounds kind of trite, but um, 
a lot of times people think that juice, fruit juices are a very safe and healthy uh, drink option, but we know that um, sugary beverages like uh, juices, they're one of the leading causes of obesity. And it sounds like a simple thing to take out, um, but that would be a very uh, a big marker that people could try to move to improve that. But also just trying to uh, model for parents, for them to model what healthy lifestyles are like diet and exercise, it's really easy for somebody to tell their children, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. But if they're living a different lifestyle than what they're preaching, then many times the message doesn't get passed over. So I think one of the most important things that parents can do to help treat obesity is to actually engage in the journey with the kids themselves. And it can also have great potential health benefits for the, for the overall family. So I would say having parents be able to model the behavior that they're asking their kids to do would be very helpful. Boy, that's a great suggestion. And a parlay to that is peer pressure because, you know, come on, we've all raised kids. Sugar, sweets, pizza, peer pressure. How do we handle that piece of it? Yeah, that's, that is difficult, especially, you know, a lot of times kids uh, are eating at school and their school lunches and everybody else has different food items and what they can buy in the cafeteria. I think, you know, just trying to maintain a consistent message that, you know, we can do what everyone else is doing, but then we're going to have the same health problems that everybody else is going to have. And so just trying to, uh, you know, stay true to yourself. Uh, you know, life is not about comparing yourself to other people. It's about achieving the goals that you've set. And if you want to live a healthy lifestyle, the only person you need to compare yourself is to yourself. And look, we don't want to be critical of our wonderful school systems because, my gosh, they've been through so much this past year. And yet I have quite a few friends who are teachers, and it's no hidden secret that the school lunchroom is not the healthiest place to eat. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of times, and it's it's certainly another level of preparation, but bringing the school lunch so that you have more control over, over what your children are eating, um, that is very helpful. But for sure, it is a challenge uh, for our busy society to, to have to take on that extra benefit. Uh, you know, the greatest solution would be to, to have, you know, healthier options at school. And that's not to say that school lunches are not healthy at all. There are certainly healthy alternatives there, but... When you have the, the option of something healthy versus not healthy as the child, trying to focus more on, on the wiser food choices um, is beneficial. And this is not just for school lunches and cafeterias. This is just in general. You know, when we go out to eat um, or we pick which restaurant we want to go to, there's always options. And so having the patient and the families have the education on, on how to pick what is healthy is just as much uh, an important way to tackle this uh, pandemic of obesity uh, as it is with focusing on it from the other side, which is the, the food options. Walk us through what damage is being done in the body. We can just sort of go by organ system. And, you know, as a cardiologist, my main focus is on the heart. And so when we think about the negative effects of blood pressure on the heart, the blood pressure is what the heart has to pump against to get blood out to the rest of the body. And the higher the blood pressure is, the harder the heart has to work to overcome that blood pressure. In, the heart is a muscle just like any other muscle. And, and over time, if it's being worked uh, over time, it can develop abnormal thickening or stiffening of the heart. And uh, in more severe cases, it can even lead to dysfunction or poor squeezing of the heart. 
And uh, the term for the thickening of the heart is called left ventricular hypertrophy. And in adults, left ventricular hypertrophy has been associated with uh, poorer cardiovascular outcomes. So we, we certainly care about that um, from, a, from a cardiovascular standpoint. Um, in the kidneys, you can lead to damage to the, to the tissue of the kidney that can lead to kidney failure over time. Um, it can lead to uh, damage to the blood vessels in your eyes. And in very severe cases in the brain, you can get um, higher rates of dementia with hypertension. And in very high blood pressures, you can even develop strokes. So these are all very important and uh, potentially significant negative effects that can occur in the body from high blood pressure. Definitely something to pay attention to as we are kids. Boy, you think time is on your side, and that could be a big mistake. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. We don't really see those kind of uh, negative effects or the the like the end outcomes in young healthy people, but the negative changes start even at a very young age. There's a, a lot of data that suggests that the the thickening and the clogging of the arteries um, can start even in the teenage years. So that's why as pediatricians we're focused so much on this because we want to ensure and prepare our, our patients and your children for as long and as healthy and as productive a life as possible. You know, childhood obesity is a real issue in Texas. We all know it's an epidemic, and I know you specialize and deal with things related to being a pediatric cardiologist, but we have to deal with type 2 diabetes. It's really tough, though. You know, when you look at families They've got to balance and have a good life for their kids, and yet we have birthday parties, we give them candy and treats at Halloween, Valentine's Day, you name it. We're always doing things that put some foods before them that may not be healthy. But at the same time, you want the kids to have a balanced life. Yes. And, uh, and you know, another important point to bring up for families uh, is that you can go to the doctor and they can, you know, lay down the law as to like, oh, this is what you should be doing. But, you know, in order to maintain a sustainable lifestyle change, uh, it's about doing something that is that they can adhere to. So if I have a patient that comes in for high blood pressure and they have a terrible diet, they eat all sorts of unhealthy snacks and they're eating out all the time or they're eating TV dinners and all that. Um, instead of telling them to go cold turkey, we sort of tell them to do it you know, in a step-by-step -step approach. So focus on one or two things that you think that, okay, I got this, I think I can uh, change this. And then once they've established that as a part of their routine, then they can slowly add things on. And so doing things uh, 100% all the way right at the beginning is almost a surefire way of having them not be able to sustain that. And so working with the families and trying to uh, and, and trying to make it so that it's something they can do and that it's realistic is important. So with your your points about Halloween and Valentine's Day, certainly those are days that you know it'd be great if there are other healthier alternatives. But I've found that for pediatric patients, if you tell them you can never have candy again, they just stop listening to you. And so it's important to get buying from them as well. We've been listening to Dr. Alan Singh. He's a pediatric cardiologist with Children's Health. Thank you so much, Dr. Singh, for shedding light on that topic. And talking about shedding light on a topic, 
Another one that we've been seeing a lot over the last year is shingles. So over to Arlington we go to talk to internal medicine physician Kishore Gangani about shingles. That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. We're going to continue our discussions today and talk about shingles. And I'm not talking about what you put on the roof of your house. I'm talking about something, and I'll be candid. I've had shingles, and it's very painful. We're delighted that we've got with us Dr. Kishore Gangani, who's an internal medicine physician at Texas Health Arlington Memorial Hospital. Thomas, have you ever had shingles? No, I haven't. What, were you in your 50s or 60s when it hit? I had uh, early 50s, but you got to realize I'm a product of when we didn't uh, vaccinate against chickenpox. I had chickenpox when I was in the second grade. See, I don't remember if I did or not. But interestingly, as I knew we had this segment coming, a friend of a friend again, I've got all these friends of friends, had shingles. But this lady was in her 90s. And boy, has it been painful. Yeah. And you know, one thing that is good, they have come up with a I guess you could call it a vaccine. When you reach age 60, you can actually take a vaccination related to shingles. And it's from what the doctors, I've had it, by the way, but what doctors told me is even if you have shingles, it will not be near as severe and you might not have it at all. So let's talk to a doctor about this. As Steve mentioned, Kishore Gangani, who is an internal medicine physician at Texas Health Arlington Memorial Hospital. What you see is basically painful rash, and usually it's a single stripe of blister, usually on one side of the body. It starts with the pain, then slowly you start seeing rash and then blister. One thing I want to actually brought to people's attention that uh, this particular virus, varicella, varicella zoster virus, causes two distinct clinical diseases at two different ages. If we remember being a kid, some of us probably had, we call it chicken pox or varicella infection. So what happens when we get this infection as a kid, the virus actually stays in body. Usually it's in the nerve tissue close to the spinal cord or close to the brainstem or base of the brain. And later in the age, usually after 50, you know, for some reason, this virus actually gets reactivated either because of weakened immune system or some sort of stress. And that infection that we see that time is basically shingles. So what we see in a kid is different from what we see when it happens in someone who is older than 50-year-old. And as we see, probably 1.2 million cases every year. 30% people will suffer from shingle in their life. And usually this is in later ages of life. But 30% is a pretty big number if you consider that. You know, Thomas, mine lasted about a week to 10 days. Uh, it was on my back and down my leg, which in some ways was a blessing. Some people get it on their face. Some people, it even threatens their eyesight. Well, I mentioned this friend of a friend at the earlier part of the beginning of the segment, and this lady was in her 90s, so there were a couple of challenges that came up with her. 
Number one, she didn't have easy transportation to get to the doctor. Number two, this still overhanging cloud is that people are a little bit reluctant to go into a medical care facility when they need to because of the COVID monster. So she didn't, and it exacerbated, and she had a much worse case than she could have if she had gotten care earlier. You know, that's a good point, Thomas, because when I talk to the physicians, once you suspect you have shingles and you think you need to see a medical professional, there's some medications and treatments they can do. So as you say, you don't put it off, you try to treat it at home, it could get much worse. So when should a person seek medical treatment when they have shingles? Uh, this is a very important question, actually. problem with shingles sometimes is when you have initial symptoms, when you don't have actually rash, which is one of the most common symptoms is just a pain. And that is usually on the one side of the body, depending on which nerve is involved. So you will start having pain, just a tingling, burning, numbness, irritating pain. And you might think, you know, depending on location, let's say if it is on left side of the chest, you feel like, oh, I'm having chest pain. You might feel like, oh, okay, is this a heart attack? So it makes you actually very confused. But when you see rash, then you usually get idea that this is probably shingle. Now, shingle is not life-threatening usually. When you see rash and if you're 60 and above, you know, you definitely need to contact your contact your doctor just to make sure that it gets monitored and you get right treatment. But more so for if you see location of shingles, let's say if, if it is next to the eye, which could be very, very bad if it is left untreated, you can lose eye from that. So in that case, you know, moment you see rash close to your eye, you definitely have to call your doctor. Or if you have someone in your house whose immune system is weak from from some reason, and if you suspect even a slightest uh, hint of shingles, you know, you have to call your doctor. If you've never had chicken pox, because we're immunizing a lot of the children today against chicken pox, which is a good thing. But if you've never had that, can you still develop shingles? So a very, very good question. So in order to have a shingles, uh, you have to have infection at some point or exposure at some point. The way a virus works, let's say if you got chickenpox and you have lesions from chickenpox, we call it, you know, vesicles or blisters. And the virus is usually seen in those vesicles. And when it bursts open, break open, it also causes, you know, skin nerve endings to be exposed. That nerve endings basically pick those viruses and viruses go up, travel up in the nerve and this sits in the area called, you know, we call it sensory ganglion, which is nerve tissue close to the spinal cord before nerve goes into spinal cord. So in short, you know, you have to have either infection or at least mild exposure to have virus sit in the body and wait for, you know, after certain years, they will get reactivated. So if you contract shingles, like you said, near your eye, is it possible it could do severe eye damage? Absolutely. If it's not treated on time, some people actually lose eyesight and that could be very bad because it's irreversible damage. This condition is called, we call it herpes zoster ophthalmicus. So it's a, we call it, you know, cranial nerves or 
uh, nerves coming out of the brain, which helps your face muscles and your eyes. And if those nerves are affected and if that infection causes infection in the eye itself, that could be a very, very bad situation because if it doesn't get treated on time, you might lose your eyesight. That is very serious. You know, you mentioned that shingles is caused by a virus. So if an individual has shingles, are they contagious? Yes, uh, depending on what time of the infection uh, in the course of disease. If you have shingles and if you have an open blister or open skin lesions, it can be uh, spread through either direct contact or through airborne droplets. And that could cause uh, transmission of infection to other people. It will not cause you actually shingles. It will cause you chickenpox. Because remember, the shingles is not the primary infection. Primary infection is actually the chickenpox or varicella infection. And later on in the life, you would get shingles. Now, in this case, if you are newborn or if you are pregnant female or if you are having weak immune system for any reason, you know, you are at higher risk of catching this infection from shingles patients. So you have to avoid direct contact when they have open lesions or open blisters. Once blister crustes or scabs over, then they're not contagious anymore. Definitely one of the things we need to watch as we move up the timeline of life. Thank you, Dr. Gangani, for that insight on shingles. Steve? What a great show today, and thank you for joining us. You know, let's close on some real positive news. Tomorrow in Texas, people age 50 and above are eligible for the vaccination. And also the great news from the CDC this week about when you don't have to wear a mask. But please don't let your guard down. Wash your hands, physical distance, and yes, wear that mask. See you next week.